Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 through 38, verses 22 through 26. And he cometh to Bethesda, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit upon his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up, and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes, and made him look up. And he was restored, and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Burkett Notes Here we have recorded a special miracle wrought by our Savior at Bethesda, in curing a blind man brought unto him, where observe, one, what evident proof the Pharisees had of Christ's divine power and Godhead. He had before caused the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, and the lame to walk. Now he makes the blind to see. Yet did the Pharisees obstinately resist all means of their conviction and continued in their opposition to truth, to their inevitable and unutterable condemnation. Observe here, too, the wonderful humility, the great condescension of Jesus Christ towards this blind man. He took him by the hand and led him himself. A great evidence of his condescending humility and of his goodness and mercy, showing how ready and willing he was to help and heal him. See here a singular pattern of humility and condescending grace and mercy in our dear Redeemer, in that he vouchsafed with his own hands to take and lead a poor blind man through the streets of Bethesda, in the sight of all the people. Let us learn of him who was thus meek and lowly in heart. Observe 3. Our Lord helps the blind man out of town before he heals him, not in the town where all the people might take notice of it, thereby teaching us to avoid all show of ambition all appearance of vainglory in what we do, even as Christ sought not his own glory, but the glory of him that sent him. Observe 4. The manner of the cure wrought upon this blind man. It was gradual and by degrees, not instantaneous and at once. He had first a dark, dim, and obscure sight, afterwards a clear and perfect sight. Christ thereby gave evidence of his absolute and omnipotent power, that he was not tied to any particular means or manner or order of working, but wrought his miracles variously, as he sought to be most fit for the glory of God and the benefit of his people. Observe lastly the charge given by our Savior not to publish this miracle in the town of Bethesda, a place where Christ had so often preached and wrought so many miracles. But the inhabitants had obstinately and contemptuously undervalued and despised both his doctrine and miracles. Therefore we read, Matthew 11.21, that our Savior denounced a woe against Bethesda, assuring her that it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than her. The higher a people rise under the means, the lower they fall if they miscarry. Such a people as have been nearest to conversion, not being converted, shall have the greatest condemnation when they are judged. Verses 27 to 33. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom do ye say I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, 
Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Burkett notes, These verses relate to us a conference which our Savior had with his disciples, touching their own and others' opinion of his person, where observe one, the place where Christ and his disciples did confer. It was in the way as they walked together teaching us our duty to take all occasions and opportunities for holy conference, for good discourse touching spiritual things, when in the house, when in the field, when traveling in the way. Malachi 3.16 Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. Observe, too, the conference itself. Whom do men say I am? That is, what do the common people think and speak of me? Not as if Christ were ignorant what men said of him, or did vaingloriously inquire after the opinion of the multitude concerning him, but with an intention of more firmly to settle and establish his disciples in the belief of his being the true and promised Messiah. The disciples tell him that some said he was John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. It is no new thing, it seems, to find diversity of judgments and opinions concerning Christ and the affairs of his kingdom. When our Savior was among men who daily conversed with him, yet was there then a great diversity of opinions concerning him. Observe 3. How St. Peter, as the mouth of all the apostles, and in their names, makes a full and open confession of Christ, acknowledging him to be the true and promised Messiah. Peter said, Thou art the Christ. Whence note, that the veil of Christ's human nature did not keep the eyes of his disciples' faith from seeing him to be truly and really God. Two, that Jesus, the Son of the Virgin Mary, was the Christ, the true Messiah, or the person ordained by God to be the mediator betwixt God and man, the Redeemer and Savior of mankind. Thou art the Christ. Observe four, the charge and special injunction given by our Savior to tell no man of him, that is, not commonly and openly to declare that he was the Son of God and the true Messiah, because he was now in a state of humiliation, and the glory of his divinity was to be concealed till his resurrection. Christ had his own fit times and proper seasons in which he revealed the great mysteries of his kingdom to the world. Observe 5 the great wisdom of our Savior in acquainting his disciples with the near approach of his death and passion, thereby to prevent that scandal and offense which otherwise they might have taken at his suffering, the better to fit and prepare them to bear that great trial, and to correct the error which they had entertained, touching an earthly kingdom of Christ, that the Messiah was to be a temporal prince. Observe 6. St. Peter's carriage towards Christ upon this occasion. He took him aside and began to blame him for affirming that he must die. Oh, how ready is the flesh and blood to oppose all that tends to suffering! What need have we to be fortified against the temptations of our friends, as well as of our enemies? Satan sometimes makes use of good men as his instruments to do his work by, 
when they little suspect it. Little did Peter think that Satan now set him on work to hinder the redemption of mankind by dissuading Christ from dying. Observe 7. With what indignation Christ rejects Peter's admonitions. Get thee behind me, Satan. Christ heard Satan speaking in Peter. It was Peter's tongue, but Satan tuned it. Therefore, Christ calls Peter by Satan's name. They that will do the devil's work shall have the devil's name, too. He that would hinder the redemption of mankind is Satan, an adversary to mankind. From our Savior's smart reproof given to Peter, we learn that no respect to men's person or regard to their piety must cause us to flatter them in their sins or move us to speak favorably of their sins. As well as our Savior loved Peter, he rebukes him severely. O Lord, so intent was thy heart upon the great work of our redemption that thou couldst not bear the least word that should obstruct thee in it or divert thee from it. Verses 34 and 35. And when he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how our blessed Savior recommends his religion to everyone's election and choice, not attempting by force and violence to compel any person to the embracing of it. If any man will come after me, that is, if any man chooses and resolves to be a Christian. Observe, too, our Savior's terms propounded, namely, self-denial, gospel suffering, and gospel service. 1. Self-denial. Let him deny himself, by which we are not to understand either the denying of our senses in matters of faith or the renouncing of our reason in matters of religion, but a willingness to part with all our earthly comforts and temporal enjoyments for the sake of Christ when called thereunto. 2. Gospel suffering. He must take up his cross. In allusion to the Roman custom that the malefactor who was to be crucified took his cross upon his shoulders and carried it to the place of execution. Where note that not the making of the cross, but the patient bearing of it when God has made it and laid it upon our shoulders is the duty enjoined. Let him take up his cross. 3. Gospel service. Let him follow me, says Christ. That is, obey my commands, and imitate my example. He must set my life and doctrine continually before him, and be daily corrected and reforming of his life by that rule and pattern. Observe 3. The reasons urged by our Savior to induce men to a willingness to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ and his holy religion. He that will save his life shall lose it, and he that is willing to lose his life for the gospel's sake, the same shall find it intimating to us, one, that the love of this temporal life is a great temptation to men to deny Christ and to renounce his holy religion, and that the surest way to attain eternal life is cheerfully to lay down our temporal life when the glory of Christ and the honor of religion requires it at our hand. Verses 36 and 37. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Burkett notes, 
Our Savior had shown in the former verses the great danger of seeking to save our temporal life by exposing to hazard our eternal life. This he confirms in the words before us by a double argument. The first, drawn from the excellency of eternal life, or the life of the soul. The second, drawn from the irrecoverableness of this loss, or the impossibility of redeeming the loss of the soul by any way or means whatsoever. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Learn, one, that Almighty God has entrusted every one of us with a soul of inestimable worth and preciousness, capable of being saved or lost, and that to all eternity. Two, that the gain of the whole world is not comparable with the loss of one precious soul. The soul's loss is an inconceivable, irrecompensable, and irrecoverable loss. Verse 38. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Burkett notes, That is, whosoever shall deny or disown me, either in my person, my gospel, or my members, for any fear or favor of man, he shall with shame be disowned and eternally rejected by me at the great day. There are two passions that make persons disown Christ and religion in the day of temptation, namely, fear and shame. Many good men have been overcome by the former, as St. Peter and others, but we find not any good men in Scripture guilty of the latter, namely, that denied Christ out of shame. This argues a rotten, unsound, and corrupt heart. If any man thinks it beneath his honor and quality to own the opposed truths and despise members of Jesus Christ, he will think it much more beneath him, his honor and dignity, to own them at the great day. Learn hence that it is not sufficient that we own Christ by believing in him. We must honor him by an outward professing of him also. Secondly, that such as are ashamed of Christ's doctrine or members are ashamed of Christ himself. Thirdly, that such as either for fear dare not, or for shame will not, own the doctrine of Christ or the members of Christ now, shall find Christ ashamed to own and confess them at the great day. Whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and wicked generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels.